0: And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to first Samuel chapter eighteen. We're going to look at two chapters this morning, so I have the uh, I have the text printed out, uh, so I'm going to be handling this a little bit so if you wonder what I'm carrying, I'm carrying the Word of God printed off of bible gateway so um, so I started reading this text a few weeks back, and uh, I was involved in deciding on the sermon series that we were going to be doing, but uh somehow i I wasn't part of deciding who was preaching what text. And then I read this text. And I got the text that talks about 200 foreskins, and a man laying naked on the ground prophesying. And I thought to myself, we have two guys on the pastoral team that are doctors. I'm not one of them. That's probably not like a flash of genius there, okay? I thought, wouldn't it be fair... So, one of the themes I want to go after this morning, and by the way, don't worry, there will be no visual slides today, okay? (laughs) Seriously, the text is at once amazing to me. It is a a text that I have fallen in love with in spite of fear and trepidation, but it is also a text that is disturbing. Not as much because of the things that jump out at us, but because of the trajectory of the main character's life. What's sad to me is that we could, I read the text, and I, the, first, the things that stuck out to me were the weird things, the ancient war things. And that's where my eye got focused. That caused panic. Then I started reading through it, and I saw the story of the main character, Saul. And I realized this text is an amazing story of uh, the decline of a man who walks away from God. And it's the amazing story of a man who trusts in God's purpose and plan. You know, in our lives, I think we're often tempted to say something's bad and then something's good. For instance, this morning, coming into church on the Sunday morning, I, li- I like sunshine because I think people are more engaged when the worship leader gets up to sing. People are already kind of there. They're awake. And so I looked out and saw it's raining. I said, well, that's bad. And I thought to myself, well, if it's raining, it's not freezing outside. And that's good. kind of works that way in our hearts, doesn't it? My daughters would sometimes come to us and say, Hey, uh, I got some news. Do you want the bad news or the good news first? So, give me the bad news first. So, these are true stories. My daughter called us on her phone one day and said, I spun out on the ice on Route 22. I said, Well, that's bad. I ended up facing the wrong direction in the passing lane. Well, that's bad. I didn't hit anybody. Well, that's good. <laughs> Just, we're kind of wired that way. Uh, when me and a couple friends in 1996 got back from RFK Stadium in D.C. at 3 o'clock in the morning, I had a great trip back. I went out Sunday morning and uh, had a flat tire on my station wagon that we'd used for the trip. Bob, you were with us. I said, well, that's bad. <laughs> and then I thought, it didn't happen on the way back last night at 3 in the morning. That's good, Right? Uh, one time I got bumped off a flight, and I thought, well, that stinks. I'm going to be late for where I'm going. Got a $700 voucher. Well, that's good, right? For our 20th anniversary, I took my wife uh, to one of the Caribbean islands. And uh, I called and found out that there was a flight available. I then, in light of that, called and secured a destination at a resort, and this is awesome. That's good. My dad drops me off at the airport with my wife, getting ready to go off on this beautiful trip. We get to the gate, you put your credit card in, and your name pops up, and you got your flight. Well, our name didn't pop up. I found out that there was a flight, but I never booked the flight. That's bad. I sat on the ground in front of the uh, counter, and the lady's like, sir, you can't sit there. I said, ma'am. I'm not going anywhere. Got on my phone, started calling for uh, my my miles. And, well, you can't use miles unless you're, like, three days before the flight. And this is pre-9-11 and stuff. I am sitting. She's like, sir, you got to move. I said, ma'am, I'm on the phone with the people at Southwest Airlines trying to use my points. You you can't make me move. So I kind of refused to move and... Over time, finally, I I said, look, it's my 20th anniversary. I'm begging my stupidity stupidity and the unfortunate imbecile that I can be at sometimes. I'm begging that with them. I said, I'm standing with my wife. My dad already left. And if I have to call him to come and get me, I will never live this down. (laughs) Don't let this happen to me. They're going to say it always happens to you, which is true. But (laughs) I believe that God brought me into my wife's life. That may not sound good. To teach her patience and many, and that's good. That's good. The backstory of this text. That kind of goes back and forth over something that's bad but something good is happening. Something beautiful is merging, emerging from the sovereign hand of God. The backstory is that God has chosen a nation to be his people. The nation Israel. You read that in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham. And through this nation, ultimately a saving figure is going to come. A redeemer. And that's just incredibly beautiful good news. But Israel needs a shepherd. They need a king. As you read through the book of Judges, that's really the theme. These The judges just aren't working out. Israel needs a king. So they beg for a king, and God gives them the king of their choice, which seems good, but it ends up being bad because Saul, King Saul is fundamentally uh, flawed and broken. He is a failing king. Pride and independence have taken their toll on his life. And by the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, verse 23 and 28, the prophet Samuel declares to this rebel king Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand and given it to your neighbor, to one who is better than you. And I want you to hang on to that phrase. He has given it in the future to one who is better than you. So Saul is still king. He's working out his demise, and you'll see why he is unfit in this text to be king. But you will also see why that is such a good thing in the hand of God at work, in the most difficult and incredible circumstances. God's purpose for his people, this text will argue, stands. And God will provide for his people a glorious king. In the midst of this story, you will find this discussion about the Philistines. They are the uh, pitted enemies of the Jews. And seasonally, at different times of year, when it's appropriate for war, because the climate is correct for it, there is this increasing conflict as they uh, seek to attack the nation of Israel. And there is constant trouble between them. Goliath was the Philistines' champion, harassing them. And last week, Doug beautifully presented for us the story of David and Goliath, really the story of God's rule over his people. And as you went through that story, you saw the hand of God working in the life of a thoroughly unexpected person, the youngest son of a no-name man, destroys this Philistine antagonist. And as David stands before the king with the the dripping head of Goliath in his hands, this text begins to unfold on this very day. And I want you to read with me 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing, this princely robe, and he he gave it to David along with his tunic and and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. All the implements that would mark Jonathan as the the heir apparent to the throne, the prince of Israel. Whatever mission, verse 5 says, Saul sent David on, he was so successful... That Saul gave him an elevated rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home... And by the way, here's what we would say. That's good, right? That's good. When the men were returning home from battle after David had killed the Philistine... The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul... With singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang... Saul has slain his thousands. That's good. And David is tens of thousands. That's good. Verse 8. Saul was very angry. And this refrain galled him or displeased him greatly. He mutters to himself, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that day on, Saul kept a close or ill-intended eye, an evil eye on David. And so this account brings us to the threshold of a season of incredible struggle for David. You're going to find David having great days and David having horrific days. And in the midst of this story, you find this strong and determined response from Saul... And here's the question that emerges. Why does Saul become such a committed, devoted enemy of David? And I think the reason is this. The text I read you earlier, God has torn the kingdom from your hand. That's what Saul knew from the prophet Samuel. That his days were limited. That his demise was evident. Saul does not surrender to that and repent before God for his fierce independence and the developing resentment in his heart. Instead, he cultivates an animosity, a resentment towards God's chosen king. Saul concludes from this song, Saul has killed his thousands. And and in in poetry, this sets up a contrast. But David is tens of thousands, which is to say that David is a greater and mightier warrior than Saul himself. And that, that ate at Saul. It destroyed him emotionally. And the end result is that Saul cannot be happy as long as David is alive. And so the rest of the text talks about the attempts of Saul to destroy God's anointed chosen child. Okay, that's, the, that's where this text is going to move. So I want to work through the text, making the following observations. Beginning with me in verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God, an ill-intended spirit, uh, intent to disrupt this rebel heart, God confronts forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in the house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. This is a fascinating picture, isn't it? David comes in for a session of music therapy, and Saul listens, but he is deeply troubled and deeply tormented in his heart. And you're going to find... The first of nine attempts to kill David that are recorded in this text. And it actually kind of doubles up in verse 1. Saul had a spear in his hand because he was paranoid and angry and resentful and emotionally disintegrating. He said to himself, and you can just imagine, he was saying to himself, he was muttering, I'll pin David to the wall, I'll, 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 I'll rid myself of this antagonist, I will, I, will, I will put him to the wall. Which literally is to say, I'll kill him. And the text is fascinating, it says, but David eluded him twice. And you almost get the sense that David eludes it, and in he feels sorry for him, and he, he feels this is pitiful. He doesn't rise up to defend himself. He sees the work of God taking this king apart because of his rebellion. And David seems to stay and play on. And then you find the second attempt twice. Saul tries to kill David in this text. He could not be around David. He had to eliminate him. Look at verse 12 then. It says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul. There was a palpable presence of God with David. and and an overt sense on Paul's part, and expressed displeasure with God, a a sense that God had left him, that God had abandoned him in judgment for his rebellion against the plan of God. And so what what Saul does then is he, he, he sends David out. Verse 13, so he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. David led the troops in their campaigns, and if, if you are following this account, David hate, or Saul hates David, Saul wants to terminate David's life, so what Saul does is he gives him a group of soldiers as a young leader with the assumption that David, in his arrogance, in his uh, youthful energy, will miscalculate and will be killed. That will become very evident in just a few verses. And I believe that's what happens here. And what you will notice is that that plan on Saul's part backfires. Notice what the text says. In everything David did, verse 14, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So that brings us to the end of the third attempt. On David's life, which God is, as David is going out in his inexperience, God is protecting his man. That's the thrust of this text. Verse 17, Saul said to David, and so David can't get him through the attempts he's done, so he figures he'll, he'll lure David with prestige. Hey David, here's my oldest daughter, Merab. Which, by the way, interestingly, she was the promised prize for the one that killed Goliath. You remember that, right? From last week. That never happened. Because Saul is a liar and deranged. He says to to David, notice I'll just read the text for you. Here is my daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Go be valiant. Take great risk do well for Israel, gain a large reputation. All of that is subterfuge. It's meant to lure David into circumstances that are unwise. I'll give you my daughter. You can become part of the king's family, part of the royal dynasty. You can marry in. And then he says this, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So now you have boldly stated the intention of Saul. Put David in a place of risk where David is eliminated by others. Because, and and this is how maniacal Saul is, it's just not going to look good if King David knocks off a young general. It just doesn't have good optics. And so he sets up a plan that will allow David to die as a hero, but he'll be rid of him. But God continues to protect his man. In this case, the humility of David protects him. Notice David's response to the offer of the king in verse 18. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? And what is David doing? David's rejecting the offer. And another time for Saul, it backfires. He thought David would jump on that and want it. But David's a different kind of guy than Saul. He's not ambitious. He's confident in the calling of God on his life, and he's waiting for the time of God to fulfill that plan. And it brings a settled peace in David's life so that he is not grabbing at prestige. I think what David is somewhat saying is he said, David wasn't tempted to go on Ancestry.com and look up his family heritage so that he could prove to Saul that he was a good candidate for his daughter. It's not the case. David says it's it's not even... (laughs) worth looking and if you look back in the history of David's lineage you find a Moabite named Ruth which disqualifies the line in terms of pedigree from being royalty in Israel fascinating so David shrewdly and wisely says I can't afford the bride price can't afford to be the king's son and he denies his, his call in verse 20 you find the next plan of Saul To snare David. Here's what happens. Verse 20. It says, now Saul's daughter was in love with David. This is his younger daughter. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Not he was happy. He was pleased in a cynical fashion. He saw another chance to knock off the heir apparent to the throne. He says to himself, I will give her to him so that she might be a snare to him and so that the Philistines may be against him. So what does it mean that Michael will be a snare to David? I have always thought until this morning as I was just reading the text that Michael must be like a really messed up person. And Saul's glad that she's fallen in love with David because if she can put him off on David, he's free from that problem. And she'll be a snare to him. Possibility, but unlikely. I think the text makes it clear. When David becomes the son of the king, he comes into the line of princes. And when he's on the battlefield... His relationship with Michael that ties him to the royal family will make him a higher value target to kill. And I think that's how twisted and wicked a mind filled with resentment can be. And I give you this warning. As you read Saul's life, there's an understory here. It's not the main story. There's an understory. Resentment and bitterness can ruin your life. Saul could not handle the fact that David would have what belongs to him. It tore him apart. He could not be happy for the success of others. He was that self-centered and that resentful. Now, interestingly, for the marriage to Michael, Saul lays out a, a price, and it's the disturbing part of this text. Saul says to David, David, if you go in battle, in justified battle, it's a a rightful war, so it's not a question about that. But if you go kill a hundred Philistines and give me death certificates, would be the foreskins. If you provide that from those uncircumcised Philistines, I will give you my daughter. And what is Saul thinking? You can't do that and not die. You go and try that, it's not going to go well. What happens? David goes, is protected. Brings back double the death certificates. And Saul's plan is destroyed. And Michael falls deeply in love with David because of his heroic efforts to please her father. And the king is is torn up inside. In verse 28 to 30, this attempt on the part of Saul to delegitimize and kill David backfires. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, And that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid and remained his enemy the rest of his days. It becomes a deep-seated goal of Saul's life to eliminate David and to have him gone. The Philistine commanders to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success. This is God raising up his anointed one in the face of attempts and plans and plots to extinguish his life. David met with more success, verse 30 says, than the rest of Saul's officers. He became the elite general in Israel. And his name became well known. Now, what does Saul do about that? That's well, the next attempt on David's life. Ta- Saul now gets very bold. He goes to his son, Jonathan, who is the heir apparent to the throne, thinking that Jonathan is like him. And he baits Jonathan with something. He says, hey, Jonathan, I want you to co By direct order, I want you to go and to kill David. Verse 1 of 19, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had a great liking for David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow. And David didn't say, I did not know that he was trying to kill me. David knew. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding, stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Now, for the sake of time, what happens is uh, Jonathan has this encounter with Saul. Saul relents on his desire to have David killed. Verse 7, Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So that attempt to kill Appealing to the desires of Jonathan to be the heir apparent without any contest. That it falls flat on its face. Verses 7 to to 10. David is now back with the king. And once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. Which raised his reputation and galled Saul. So what happens? (laughs) Verse 9. An evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul. And as he was sitting in the house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre, he tried again to pin him to the wall. Folks, I want you to understand something. Saul is a skilled warrior. He is so mentally distraught and deranged in his rebellion against God that he can't even get himself together to act in his role. And David eludes him. And it's the last time that you will see David and Saul together in this entire account. It's fascinating. fascinating. And sad ending. The eighth attempt is verse 11 through 17. Now, Jonathan won't comply, so what what does Saul do? Saul calls in his CIA agents. He calls in his secret service. He says, I need your help. This guy is threatening to take the throne. He is maniacal in his intentions. He's ill-intended, and I want you to kill him. So... These men go uh, to the house of Michael. Michael's the daughter of the king. David's wife, however, warned him. Verse 11, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and, and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it in the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. And when Saul sent the men to capture David, she said, he is ill And Saul sent men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered the house, there was an idol in the bed. And the head, and at the head was some goat's hair. And what did they realize? They realized that they had been deceived by Michael. She put her own life at risk to protect David's man. That's what she did. But how does she describe what she did? Here's what she says. You know that rascal David? Try to murder he, he told me that he would murder me if I outed him. Which makes David what? Starts with an F. Makes David a fugitive. Because the rumor that Michael spreads to protect herself is also a lie. She says, I I I I I I I was forced by him. he, he, he told me that he would murder me if I didn't let him go. So I let him go. Self justification. There's a lot in that. But in this context, what happens? The gloves come off. Saul is now probably at the peak of his anger. And in verses 18 through 24, you find this fascinating account of Saul sending groups of soldiers to the place where David has fled. Where did David go? David went to Samuel. I think David's saying to Samuel, Samuel, I have a couple of questions. It was a long time ago when you anointed me to be king over Israel. Things aren't going well. I just want to make sure you got it right. I don't think that's what's happening. I think David goes to Samuel because he's the only person he can trust. The man who knows what David knows, that he is God's anointed and appointed king. And as David is there, Saul hears as he, as he kind of shakes down the nation to find out, where is David? Let, we must kill him. Be done with him. He's a threat to the throne. He destabilizes the nation. So Saul sends a group of men to Niath, where Samuel the prophet is. And as they arrive, the Spirit of God comes over these ill-intended men. And they begin to speak the words of God. Saul says, well, what is up with that? He sends another group of soldiers. The same thing happens. He sends another group. Increasing frustration. Go get him. The same thing happens. Spirit of God intervenes to protect his child. In a most amazing way, he overwhelms these soldiers and disables them. What does Saul say? Saul says, I have had enough. I'll go to Niath. I'll confront Samuel and David, and they will die. And so Saul goes. And one of the most amazing aspects of this text is, as Saul, with this ill-intended, murderous hatred in his heart, as he's going towards Niath to kill off David, the Spirit of God literally takes over in his life. In the heart of a broken, deceitful, evil man, God overwhelms and overpowers in what I believe is a sign of his judgment. Against Saul. Because Saul intends to go in his own strength. God confronts the strongest man in the nation and utterly disables him. And when he finally gets to the place where David and Samuel are, he is on the ground, disrobed. This is where the text says, Saul lied, naked on the ground, prophesying all day and night. Giving David ample time to flee and save his life. Folks, I don't know about you, but when I read that story, I want to be in the tribe of David. I want to be someone who lives knowing that I am a child of God and inasmuch I have been blessed with the protection of God until he is done with my life. His promise still stands. Great is his faithfulness. That's where David is. Can you imagine this Incredible scene. Saul comes regaled. Overwhelmed by the spirit of God in his evil heart. Speaking the words of God. The verse that comes to my mind is even the wrath of man shall praise him. And Saul is bested. The king is bested by the king of kings. He is overcome. He is disabled as to his evil intention. David lives. David is able to go. Because Saul is overcome by God himself. And then this ironic proverb emerges. Is Saul among the prophets? Could someone like Saul be used of God? It's a statement of condemnation. It's it's, it's an ironic or cynical question that they're asking. Because they know the heart of Saul. That it's broken and, and deceitful. And that this is a judgment from God. Humbling Saul to the ground. Stripped of his road, robe, comic in appearance. And the spirit that once helped him now haunts him, ill intended, from God Himself, as a judgment against the sinful tendencies of God's King, Saul. When it's over, a pitiful scene emerges. Because you've got to think through to the end. And all, that's how it ends in regards to Saul. Saul's just laying there naked babbling in indistinguishable ways. But at some point, Saul's got to get up off the ground. At some point, Saul has to face the situation that he's in. And in my thinking, this is the way it came out. The once great man rises from the ground. Standing tall, but no longer great. Because, folks, that's what a heart set against others and against God will do. Let those seeds of bitterness and resentment take root in your life, and you will not accomplish the righteousness of God. For me, this text serves as a serious warning that when I go to battle with the people of God, with my wife, with my extended family, I am inviting the judgment of God into my life if I'm his child. At the end of this account, here's basically what happens. Saul gets what he wants. What did Saul want? He wanted life without David. That's what he wanted. It's exactly what he gets. And life without God. Rejected, set aside, and sadly useless. Standing tall, but no longer great. In the end, Saul can't kill David after nine attempts because God protects the life of his king, of his child. So that his purpose in his life will be fulfilled. So these applications real quick. God protects and gives his chosen ones success. It's not to say that God insulates your life. Right? We know that. We may be walking in obedience before God as David was striving to do. But we are not in that walk insulated from trouble. It's an important lesson to learn. That when I'm in the midst of that circumstance, God in his sovereignty is allowing uh, incredible threats to come into the life of David. But David, because of the promise of God, is unkillable and invincible until God's plan for him is done. That's the promise that we as God's children should hang on to. I don't like the circumstances that God is is allowing. They look to me to be bad, but God in his sovereign hand is working all things together for good. So that as we sung this morning, even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for good and for your glory. So be careful as you walk through your Christian life as a child of God's, elect by God, chosen by God, living out your life for his purposes Be careful that resentment doesn't come. And remember, in the midst of it, God will protect you as you walk in obedience to him. Put your life into his hands. That's why David in Psalm 23 can say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And this chapters 18 and 19 are clearly a a valley with the shadow of death, hanging over it. And David in retrospect says, But Lord, you were with me. You were with me. Folks, isn't it true in our lives that we often look back and see what God has brought us through and we see the hand of God more clearly. I think that David, as he writes the Psalms, is reflecting back on specific circumstances in his walk with God and he writes a song of praise in memory of that event where God works so powerfully and beautifully. One of those Psalms is Psalm 59. It's It's the Psalm that the text says that David wrote, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And here's what happens. The text says, they return at evening, snarling like dogs, prowling about the city. They wander about for food. And how, if not satisfied, I would say that's bad. Verse 16, David says this, but I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. That's good. Do you see? So we face circumstances, we can be honest and say that, that's ill-intended or that's evil or that's bad, but God is at work and that's good. That's David's reflection on this circumstance, that the God that he's serving is protecting his chosen one until God is done with him. David says, if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I refuse to panic. Second lesson is this, what God plans will happen. You see, what is Saul opposing? Saul is opposing the clearly declared will of God, that the kingdom will be torn from his hand and given to one better than him. And I believe as Saul watches David rising with such deep integrity and obedience to the will and plan of God, refusing resentment even though attacked, David sees the, or Saul sees the one who is better than himself. And he can't bear the thought of submitting to the king of kings by accepting his king and repenting of his rebellion. And so he goes down a path that is utterly destructive for his life. May God protect us. May God protect us. Because what God plans will happen. He is sovereign over all things so that everything in this text, even the wickedness of Saul, serves the purposes and plans of God. I want you to let that settle in. This text argues that everything in your life, good or bad, ill-intended or well-intended, because God is sovereign, ultimately serves his plan and purposes. which should cause us as the children of God to begin to rest in him? Saul sends David to battle to kill. That's bad. David meets with more success that's good. Saul seeks to kill David by an unusual bride price. That's bad. David succeeds doubly in that effort. That's good. Saul tries to uproot David from his house by killing him. That's bad. God plants David in his family as his son-in-law. That's good. Carson Wentz, the quarterback of the Eagles, in game 14 this past fall is injured. That's really bad. Nick Foles is the backup quarterback to Carson Wentz. That's bad. Carson Wentz is the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl and is the MVP. That's good. Nick Foles. That's good. You see, here's our tendency, is to take the negative things and think of them all as negative and destructive, uh, as a deficit. What David is doing is saying, God, I'll take whatever you bring because I know that you, you, everything, good and bad, serves your purposes. Don't be so quick to say that when the call comes, it's this, it's that. That's bad. Why not instead say, I trust God. Trust God. You see, Saul unleashes hell against David. And David stands tall. Here's what I'm confident of. I'm confident that God, as he watched what was unfolding between Saul and David, never said, I did not see that coming. Not once. Not once. Because everything serves his purpose the king's heart proverbs says is in the hand of the lord and like rivers of water he takes it wherever he wishes don't be so quick to say that's bad god has never learned something god has never been surprised by a circumstance in your life No matter it be opposition in your workplace, whether it be a struggle in your marriage and an incessant sin in your life, he is not surprised and he is there to assist and help to bring you to victory, to preserve you until his purposes for your life are done. And until he's done, as Alan Peggy Horton have said to us often, our missionaries from China, when we go to China, we feel bulletproof because we're doing the will of God. And though the king may unleash all that he has against us, his promise still stands. Great is his faithfulness. Now, I would beg of you this morning, learn to trust him. How does the gospel enter into this text? And this is just as we move into the Lord's table this morning. I think in this context, Saul, in the context of gospel thinking, tragically represents those who refuse to yield to God's king. He knows the plan of God. But he is extremely unhappy with it. Can we admit that sometimes we resist his rightful rule because we know that obedience to him may cost us some pleasure or a relationship that we value more than God and his plan for our lives? And so we resist, we harden ourselves against him. We don't want him to interfere with the specific area in our lives. Here's what I would say to you Galatians 6 Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. That's the plan of God. David or Saul ends up with a life without God spiraling downward. And I would argue this. I would argue that Saul probably seldom laughed or even smiled. Because when you know the plan of God, when you know the righteous call of God, when you know what it is to obey God and you choose to go against that, that rebellion will lead to antagonism with God. And it will begin to cause your heart spiritually to disintegrate. That's bad, okay. But here's what's good. Jonathan represents a believer who knows the promise of God for David and submits himself to it fully in spite of what it cost him personally. Without hesitation. This is my heart for young people in our church, that you would you would not go down the path of resisting and resenting God's plan because of what he keeps you from, but instead you would happily go down the path that God has for you. Because in that path, everything is beautifully serving the purpose of God, even when antagonism comes against you, even when the insulation seems to be very thin and the heat of life is blazing against you. I beg of you to surrender to God and to embrace the glorious privilege of being a son or daughter of God, confessing sin freely, welcoming, enjoying His grace, His forgiveness, and His protection in your life. Not threatened by the fact that Jesus is King, but happy that Jesus is King. May God help us. For the followers of Christ, the cross was an unforeseen circumstance. It was, in their mind, what? Bad. Death of Christ seemed to be negative. They resisted it and resented it, fought against it, over my dead body, Peter would say. But but it was part of his invincible, immutable plan to rescue and to redeem opposition to jesus did not threaten god's plan it actually serves to advance it we all sin we all fall short and deserve god's judgment that's the bad news but because of his love god sent his son into the world the man christ jesus who always lived under god's rule yet by dying in our place he took our punishment and brought forgiveness that's good news do you see The cross seems like defeat, but by the resurrection it is validated as the immutable plan of God. All of the evil serving the purposes of God. He is that sovereign in your life. Would you surrender to a king like this? The alternative is, I live life my own way without God. But I will fail to rule myself and bring destruction upon my life. If you're here this morning you've never trusted Christ, I would beg of you. Maybe God's confronting an area in your life today where there is a need for change and you have been resisting the call of God. I would beg of you this morning, repent and believe. Trust in a glorious, awesome Savior who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Know Him. And if you've trusted Him this morning, the invitation for you is wide open that as we go to the Lord's table this morning and as we partake of elements that proclaim the death of Christ as hope, the bad thing is a great thing. As you partake, say, God, I, I surrender myself to you. I, I acknowledge, I repent of this. And Paul says, examine yourselves and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And when you do it, you declare, you preach his death till he comes as hope for sinners. And our prayer should be, God, as, as I receive these elements that proclaim the cross, let them so deeply affect my heart that on Monday morning I cannot be quiet. Because I serve a God who is protecting me, whose plan for me is immutable, whose purpose is is unstoppable until he is done with my life. That should give us a hallelujah of confidence. Saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. Don't be so quick to say that what is bad is bad and that what is good is good. Be quick to trust God in all things and watch what he does in the life of his child. Fathers, we now go to the Lord's table. We pray that our hearts will be afresh with light of gospel. Knowing that what we symbolize, the death of Christ, it seems bad. But because of what accomplishes, it is the best thing. And it is gospel. It is good news. So let us, as we speak to you in our time of reflection, proclaim that and apply it to sin in our lives. And for those that don't know you, Father, I pray the day this morning would just say, God, I trust you. I see myself as a sinner. I repent. Save me. And then eat of that bread and drink of that cup, proclaiming hope in Christ's death and shed blood. We pray for your glory this morning, Lord. We trust you. And all God's people said, amen.